Welcome back to Misunderstood. I'm Rachel Yucatel. You guys are going to love today's episode. Hugh Hefner built one of the most iconic brands when he created Playboy. The bunny logo itself is probably one of the most recognizable images in the world and the mansion with its infamous grotto, a landmark amongst landmarks in Hollywood. Today's guest, Crystal Hefner, had a front row seat to it all. This former playmate and girl next door was married to Hef, who was 60 years her senior from 2012 until his death in 2017. Crystal's memoir, Only Say Good Things, Surviving Playboy and Finding Myself was just released today. And for the first time, she feels free to speak her truth. Crystal's life changed in the blink of an eye from the moment she met Hef at the Playboy Mansion Halloween party when she was 21. If you've seen the Playboy Secrets documentary series on A&E, you know that there were lots of scandals and controversies that happened behind those walls. Most of them were kept hidden until recently. By the time Crystal landed at Playboy, she had already lost her dad to an illness and her first love to war. She was a young girl in search of love and a home. Unfortunately, that's not what she found there. She struggled with mental illness, feeling trapped and under constant pressure to remain the number one girl where the life she had built could be taken away instantly. Crystal has a unique story about a very unique relationship. Now on the other side of it, she talks about finding value in who she is, not what she looks like. So we were thrilled to have this very open conversation with Crystal Hefner. so much for joining me today on Misunderstood. I'm so excited to have you here. Thank you for having me. Of course. So your book comes out today, January 23rd. Um, I was lucky enough to get a copy just a little bit in advance. And as I was mentioning to you earlier, I could not put it down. It's so good. It's so relatable. Um, you've lived such a colorful, extraordinary life. Um, but there's so much about your childhood and your upbringing and kind of why you did the things you did or the choices that you made was really explained in this book. And I think that that is the most relatable thing about you because when people see your photo or hear your name or hear your association with Playboy, they just think one thing usually until they get to the human behind that headline. And you are so um, different than I think what has been represented about you for so long. And that's why I thought it was so important to have you on the show. Thank you. Yeah, I'm very happy to be on with you. Thank you. So I wanted to start with your childhood. You have, um, you know, a, an amazing loving family that you grew up with. Can you share um, a little bit about um, where you came from, your siblings, your parents and your relationship with them? Yeah. So my whole family's from England. We moved to California when I was young. It, it was my mom, my dad, and my two older sisters. And you know, they really loved California. My dad was a singer, um, but he ended up getting sick uh, when he was, I think 48, he, he ended up passing. Um, Sorry. Oh, thanks. <laughs> and yeah, so they were from England. My mom had nothing. She had no green card. And so she pretty much struggled to make ends meet. Um, it got to the point where we were just, we were just renting a bedroom in some other family's home. 
So I, I know what it feels like to have nothing. Um, and I think something that resonated in your story from that moment is that he was a real, you know, you loved him so much. He was a real hero of yours. You looked up to him and he kind of was that glue that held your family together. And when he died, it seemed like your mom decided to try to date a lot to find a new life almost, you know, to, to, um, I don't know whether it's to fix herself, but to find a, a better life or to get an out from being in this home that may have been somewhat depressing at the time. And, um, you know, it's very interesting how you talk about kind of that moment on, because it really seems like your guy's life changed. You know, you, you ended up going down a different road a bunch of times throughout your life, but that was to me, what it seemed like the first one. Yeah. Yeah. And I just felt, you know, I talk about in the book how I didn't really feel like a family anymore. Just like the leftover scraps of one. Uh, we were very lost. My mom was always sad. And, um, you know, I would be the one trying to cheer her up and like snap out of it, you know, come on. And, uh, I think I had to grow up quick. Yeah. Um, having to take care of her and yeah, yeah, it was hard. And, but finally she, she remarried mm -hmm. and, but it was to somebody that was <laughs> kind of awful. Right. So you mentioned in your book that, um, this stepfather was sort of the one that introduced you to Playboy, at least on his shelves. That's where you first saw it. And to you, you thought these women were real women with real power, um, the height of culture and refinement. I found that interesting in your book, that that's kind of what you aspired to from looking at what he had high up on his shelves. Yeah. Yeah. To, to me, um, that guy, Lyle, my my mom's husband, to me, I'm like, wow, this guy, you know, he had a condo and a Mercedes owned a condo and had a Mercedes. I'm like, wow, he's, he's rich. <laughs> like I thought he yeah. was just so, um, like almost like better than us right. for some reason. If you have no money, you, everyone's like better, better than you. Um, and he, in his office, he had all of these playboy magazines that were in like magazines, whole magazine holders. And they're like all displayed on the shelves. And, I didn't think of it at the time. Like, oh, this guy is just a pervert basically. <laughs> but, but what I did was I took down the magazines and I saw these women and I just thought, wow, you know, they, they were in these powerful poses and these exotic places, which, you know, I come to come to find out is just settings, uh, like a set inside the same studio. <laughs> I just yeah. switched the sets. They could be anywhere um, inside that studio. But yeah, I thought these women were powerful and had the world at their feet and people respected them. And I'm like, wow, I want to be just like these women in the pages. Right. And you talk a lot in your book, in your childhood and throughout your life, feeling a sense of not being worthy or not being good enough, not being pretty enough, sort of living a life behind a rope and everyone else was getting to live this life that you wanted to live. And I found that to be sad, but also super relatable. I mean, I think so many feel like that. Can you share a little bit about that? Yeah. Yeah. When, um, my mom married Lyle, he was in the La Jolla school district and that's, you know, really nice neighborhood in San Diego. Um, so I was very fortunate to be able to go to a really good school. I went to La Jolla high school and, you know, middle school there as well. But quickly you learn that, you know, a lot of those kids and their families had so much money yeah. and with money comes power and power over other people. 
Um, so I, I did feel small and I did feel like I didn't really belong or that I, I wasn't important as, as these other people for sure. Right. Right. So, um, I love how you talk about your sort of first boyfriend, Liam, um, and how it, he didn't speak very much and it was sort of short lived and he ended up, um, basically the most he spoke to you was when he had to tell you he was breaking up with you because he cheated on you with the girl from church or something. Yeah. The first, the first boy, made me I, laugh. <laughs> I know the first boy. Yeah. You like, you think you love, right. You're just, mm. wow, this is love. And I feel like that situation shattered my trust and right. gave me trust issues for the rest of my life. Right. Because it's the first significant relationship. Um, right. But looking back, I, I laugh about it, but to be cheated on <laughs> young is, is hard. Right. No, of course. And all those first loves, I think we remember, I remember mine to this day. So it's something that sits with you and can be emotional when you, when you think about it. Um, you talk a lot about meeting Greg and how that really changed your life. And we tell everybody a little bit about Greg. Yeah. So Greg, he, we went to high school together. He was a great older than me and we just, <clears throat> We became best friends, completely inseparable. And yeah, I loved him so much. I, he was just a dream come true. And I think after losing my dad and going through hard times and meeting Greg, he felt like a breath of fresh air and somewhere I could feel safe again. Right. Um, you share in the book how you got pregnant when you were 17 years old with Greg and you guys ended up deciding you guys were too young, um, couldn't have the child, but then that became sort of a complication in your relationship and you end up, um, you broke up with him and he goes off to the military. I bring all this up because I think it's so poignant that, you know, um, you have different men in your life and, and he unfortunately um, dies. Um, as when he's away. And um, I wanted to share with you that I thought this was so powerful because it was so evident in reading your book that, you know, the, the man who's supposed to love you um, unconditionally, teach you about unconditional love, your father dies when you're so young. And then this first guy that you really fall in love with that you feel you trust and love um, is killed. And I, um, that resonates with me when I was 15, my father was 44, he died. And, um, then I was engaged to somebody who was killed. So at the time that I was 26, I lost to the two most important men in my life and I lost myself and I didn't think I had anything to lose. So those words that you wrote in the book were so powerful because I know that feeling, cause you're just like, I don't have a good track record for men staying and I don't know what love is. And I think that that is such a huge part of your story and, and many people's stories, whether or not they realize it or not. Yeah. 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 So you go and you, uh, your, your life now moves on to, um, wanting to be something that other people have. And you talk about getting your boobs done and you talk about kind of changing your appearance and wanting, um, to be, part of this sort of more glamorous life. Can you just, I know we get into it a lot in the book, but just tell everybody who hasn't really followed your story, how you got, um, you know, even invited to a party there and how you kind of came to be one of the women that uh, Hugh Hefner invited to live at the mansion. 
Well, I was in college studying psychology at San Diego State. And on the side, I would do little modeling gigs, you know, like the promo girl type stuff, handing out keychains and, you know, working at uh, motocross as like a monster energy girl, just random things like that. And yeah. uh, one of the girls I met along the way, she said, um, or she asked me if I wanted to submit my photos to go to a party at the Playboy Mansion. And I thought, oh my gosh, like they'll never pick me, but I'll submit my photos. Um, and so I did, and I got, I got accepted into this party and off I went with her. She got accepted as well. Support for today's episode comes from OneSkin. We all know New Year's is synonymous with big health resolutions. And I've definitely got some of those, but you know, one thing I'm not changing in 2024, my skin routine with one skin. I started this last year and I have never had healthier skin. What makes one skin so great? Well, their products are powered by scientifically proven peptide called OS1 that targets lines and wrinkles right where they start your cells. It's not just another skincare routine. It's a real science breakthrough. In fact, OS1 is the first of its kind to actually turn back the clock instead of just masking the signs of aging. With their full line of face, eye, body, sun, and travel size products, One Skin doesn't only promise healthier skin, they prove it. I've been all in from the first time I tried it, and so can you. For a limited time, our listeners will get an exclusive 15% off One Skin products by using the code UNDERSTOOD when you check out at oneskin.co. Starting 2024 off right and give your skin the scientifically proven love it deserves with one skin. So for Christmas, I sent my mother, who's 78, um, the travel pack, because in the travel pack, it comes with four different products, a face wash, a body lotion, a, the face um, lotion, and also the eye cream, the face cream and the eye cream. And I'm not kidding. She called me the other day and told me that she is going to be ordering um, the full size bottles because she loves it so much. And people have actually commented on her skin. And again, guys, she's 78. I've had a couple DMS from people who have told me that they've bought the product. They will not go back to anything else. They love it. They're so excited. And I keep renewing my orders. All the products are great. I love the face wash. The body lotion is great. It's not sticky. There's no fragrance and it just makes your skin turn from alligator skin to like this regular supple skin. I'm not kidding you guys. You really have to try this. One skin is the world's first skin longevity company by focusing on the cellular aspects of aging. One skin keeps your skin looking and acting younger for longer. Get started today with 15% off using code understood at oneskin.co. That's 15% off at O-N-E-S-K-I-N.co with code understood. After you purchase, they'll also ask you where you heard about them. Please support our show, sorry, and tell them we sent you. New year, healthier skin, that's one skin. We've all made our resolutions for the new year, but I wonder how many of us are actually sticking to them. I've done the whole new year, new me thing before, and I totally give up two weeks into the year. But this time I have one resolution I know I'm going to keep no matter what. Smelling better naked. It's as easy as upgrading deodorants to Lume. Lume is a game-changing whole body deodorant safe to use anywhere on your body. And I mean, anywhere pits to privates. It's especially great when you're running around all day, maybe going to the gym, then a meeting, and you just don't have time to go home in between created be created by an OBGYN who saw firsthand how body odor was being misdiagnosed and mistreated. Lume is clinically proven to block odor all day long. And thanks to its one of a kind pH optimized formula, 
Unlike certain deodorants that try to mask odor with a fragrance, Lume is formulated to stop odor before it starts. And they've got over 275,000 five-star reviews to show it for it. Make the switch to Lume. And with this special offer, you can make this year your freshest one yet. New customers get $5 off Lume's starter pack with our exclusive code and link. Use code understood at lumedeodorant.com, L-U-M-E-D-E-O-R-D-O-R-A-N-T.com. When I got my products, I will tell you that I tried all of them in a matter of a weekend. They all smelled great. I felt fresh. I didn't have to reapply. And the one great thing about it is that my daughter who had heard about these products um, stole every item I got and is using them every day and told me I have to order my own, which is hysterical. Lumi starter pack is perfect for new customers. It comes with solid stick deodorant, cream tube deodorant, two free products of your choice, like mini body wash and deodorant wipes and free shipping. As a special offer for listeners, new customers get $5 off a Lume starter pack with code understood at lumedeodorant.com. That equates to over 40% off your starter pack when you visit lumedeodorant.com and use code understood. Right. And what, what did you think the first time you saw Hugh Hefner? I had never seen a celebrity before in my life. <laughs> and so it was, it was this kind of magnetic energy, this you felt like the power you felt, you felt all of that with this, this world and this empire that he'd built. He was like definitely the king of his castle. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I think it's really evident in your writing and correct me if I'm wrong, but you really hadn't felt like you had a home up until now you had moved so much with your family. Um, you had gone through a couple different situations with, with boys, men, and this, when you finally were asked to come live, um, with half, you felt like you finally found a home. Yeah. I'm like, wow, this is somewhere I really could feel like I belong finally. Right. Um, but quickly you saw that things were not as they seem. Can you talk about what was that was like to be there, to be part of a group, um, of a harem of women, so to speak? Um, you know, what was that like for you being there? At first it, I was intrigued and it was like Charlie in the chocolate factory, you know, I'm going through this mansion and I'm seeing like carved wood everywhere and <laughs> have had pajamas in every single color. I'm like, wow, this is, this is how the other half live. And, um, I just wanted to be part of that world so bad, whatever it took, um, because yeah. anything was better than the life I had before. Yeah. Well, yeah. something that you wrote in the book, um, you said there was limos, jets, private security, and it made it look impressive, but the logos were magnets. The plane was a loner and security was outsourced workers with bunny pins. I found that like so interesting because yeah, isn't that weird? It's, yeah, it's so smoke and mirrors. And I don't think people realize that it's funny. You know, um, I ran, um, Tao. I moved from New York to Vegas with some of the owners and I moved there to open up Tao. Um, in, you know, 2005, I was there till 2009. And I remember Hef coming in with some of the girls and always behind a rope and it was high security. And, you know, even then I got to meet every celebrity possible. I was, you know, hanging out in this group and making, um, people like that. I was making their lives the best nights that they were. Right. So like I, I was part of that and I just remember, um, everyone, would get more excited when Hef would come and bring the girls because that was kind of like in those days, especially 
That's who everyone wanted to be. And it's so funny because now looking at it, like relationships with women and men, and, you know, I don't know that that would be as acceptable now. Like people definitely respected it, thought it was cool. It gave you credibility. Um, I don't know now that that would be so respected. What, what do you think? Do you think there would be a difference? If that would exist now? Yeah. Like, like men that are bringing harems of young no. women around. <laughs> No, I don't think so. I think uh, Hef left the world just just in time. You know, Me Too happened a month after he died. Yeah. So I don't think it could be a possibility now. Right, right. Juice cleanses, soup diets, keto, hours of cardio. You lose weight and it comes right back. You lose it again, comes back again. Believe me, I've been there. We all have. If this cycle sounds familiar to you, there's a better, more sustainable way to lose weight the Robody program. Robody is a patient-driven healthcare company that puts you in control of your health. Ro's mission is to enable their patients to live better and for longer by optimizing their metabolic health and helping patients lose weight. The program includes a personal coach dedicated to your health, a smart scale and in-home testing kit to track your weight loss. Obesity is a tough subject. There's a lot of shame and many shy away from even discussing it, but Roe addresses the issue head on. They give people the tools and support that enable them to succeed. They even customize products and services based on patients' personal objectives and unique biology to help them live their best life. Over 200,000 people have already chosen Roe to help them lose weight. Are you ready to get started? Before being prescribed medication, patients must complete an online medical visit, lab test, and qualify for medication based on their BMI, lab results, medical history, and the discretion of a Roe-affiliated healthcare provider. Medication must be paired with diet and exercise modifications to achieve the stated results. Medication cost is not included in the program. Patients pay for that separately. One of the great things about the Roe Body Program is they support you throughout the whole process. They handle all the insurance paperwork to help you get the medication covered. And if eligible, patients have access to their provider on demand for any questions. You can even sign up online. The Roe Body Program is ready for you to take that first step. Average weight loss is 15 to 20% in one year with healthy lifestyle changes. BMI and other eligibility criteria apply. Go to row.co slash understood. Sign up today and you'll pay just $99 for your first month and $145 a month after that. Medication costs are separate. That's ro.co slash understood. Again, row.co slash understood. Um, how did he propose and why do you think he picked you? I'm not sure why he picked me. I still reflect on that and, and think, okay, maybe because I brought calm to his life or, you know, I'm, I'm not really sure maybe, or maybe because I completely lost myself to him and became a mirror and he loved that. Uh, I'm not exactly sure, but uh, he did hand me a ring on Christmas. It was in a Little Mermaid music box. And what he said to me was, I hope it fits. It wasn't, will you marry me? <laughs> Maybe he was afraid I'd say no, but he just handed me this box with the ring inside. Well, did you know what it meant? Or did you, I mean, were you like, what is yeah. that? <laughs> yeah, I figured like, okay, he wants to get married. And if, if I say no, then... I'm not prepared to leave. <laughs> so I, I guess I'm, we're doing this and maybe it's because he wanted a good PR story for the later years of his life. 
-hmm. Not entirely sure, but he wanted to. Up until that point, did you feel like your relationship with him was, you know, more than any other woman he had there? I think he, he loved me the best way he knew how. Mm -hmm. I think he tried very hard with me. I think, um, to the, to the best that he could, but I, I think it's hard because it was hard for him to really care about anybody else's thoughts or feelings. Mm, right. Um, what are your thoughts about the women that came before you that were so public? Um, you know, do you think they were jealous that it was you that he finally picked? Do you think they were relieved? Like what, what, what do you think the thoughts were of everybody? Um, there was a bit of a feud. I think people, you know, it's petty little things. And the women are pitted against each other. Like, mm-hmm. oh, he's going to make this woman a playmate, but not this one. And it just, it pits them against each other. Um, I know Holly wanted to marry him. I'm not sure why. I think she, now she's not even sure why. But uh, yeah, I have no problem with with the girls before. And I hope we can all be friends at some point. I don't, I think there's still issue with Holly and Bridget, but Kendra and I talk uh, we shared such a unique experience that I think it'd be important to, to all chat. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, no one else knows what it was like to go through that besides the people that did go through that. So I do think it's important to have that relationship. What happened to your relationship with the Shannon twins? I spoke to them recently. I'm hoping to get together for lunch with them, but you know, we hated each other when we were all there. (laughs) We were all, we were mean to each other because you know you're all just vying f- to be closer to half or have a spot or right it's sad right um so you talk in your book and I don't want to give too much away to people but you talk in your book about how you became a runaway bride about five days before your yeah. wedding was supposed to happen can you share a little bit about what led up to that I know a couple times before you had been tempted to leave you had been stopped. Um, and you kind of planned this exit, right? Yeah. Yeah. I planned it. Um, after we got engaged, Hef, uh, was planning a show with lifetime. It was a two hour special called marrying Hef. And I overheard him and the producer talking about how they were going to make $800,000 for this two hour special. Um, and Hef came into the Vandy, my little area in his room and gave me some paperwork that had a talent fee of $2,500. And I told him, you know, $2,500, I know you're making $800,000 on this, like even just 10,000 or something, I'm going to have to carry this thing. And uh, he did it. He asked me, what are you in this for? And I got all this PTSD from all the crazy interviews where people are like, you're a gold digger and all this stuff. So if now Hef's asking me, what am I in this for? Um, So I ran out security. There was an issue where I couldn't leave. And so I, I thought I need to do this smarter. Um, so I slowly moved my stuff out and I left during a movie night. I said, I needed to pick up tampons and the security just let me out. (laughs) Right. And you didn't come back. You didn't call. You didn't say where you were going. You escaped. I didn't. And he called, he called me over and over and over and over voicemail after voicemail called my mom. Um, yeah. And I just left for a year. So Right. (laughs) Now, I think a lot of people, again, if they hadn't read your book, they wouldn't know this. I know, but you had sort of started a friendship with um, Dr. Phil's son, Jordan, um, earlier than this. You guys were working on some music together, right? Yeah, yeah. We were working on some music and 
Now I'm just curious about that for a second. So, I mean, having all this stuff for most people, you realize when you do have things and you haven't had things in the past, that's really exciting. And that'll last you for a while, but then you kind of want more. So did you want, did you want to have some sort of credibility on your own, make some money on your own? Is that why you were doing some music stuff? Um, you know, cause you, you had studied at one point to be a psychologist, like you, you obviously came from having aspirations and wanting to do more than just be someone that was seen on someone's arm. That was powerful. Yeah. And I think with the music stuff, it was, I was just kind of bored and trying to, trying to have some hobbies and that's how, that's how it started. Mm-hmm. Uh, but later on I did start working, the social media started coming out, Instagram, and I would post and make money with that. And I got right. into cryptocurrency and real estate, but, but that came a little bit later. Right. So you felt comfortable enough with Jordan and his father, Dr. Phil to, um, listen to their guidance and get, um, you know, decide to run away. But can you talk a little bit about how they, you know, they were so powerful in your life and gave you enough confidence to leave? Yeah. So I was feeling trapped and I told Jordan about it. Yeah. I didn't know who I could trust. And Jordan said, Oh, you need to come up and talk to my dad. And so I thought, okay, Dr. Phil, like he helps people on TV. That's great. So I go up to his house, top of Mulholland, and he sits me down and he's like, you're a 25 year old woman. You're in the Dr. Phil voice and nobody should trap you and you should be able to live your life. And with my newfound confidence, I go back to the mansion. I slowly move everything out. I finally leave. And, you know, Jordan's like, oh, just come live with me. And I'm like, okay, this, this guy has like a crush on me. Um, and so we ended up being in a relationship. I kind of warmed up to the idea of him and we were in a relationship. He was in a band and we went to the Viper room. He was auditioning some singers and Dr. Phil shows up and he goes, Oh, this is awesome. You know, Crystal's here. And it looks like my son bagged himself a playmate. And I'm just like, Oh my gosh, I fell into the same trap mm-hmm. again. <laughs> I like his he's convincing me to leave the mansion because his son wants to like date me or something. And I fell victim to the same stupid trap again. Right. Right. I mean, how does that make you feel that Dr. Phil, who's someone, you know, that people go to for advice and they trust him, um, you know, was kind of the one that made you see the light that you won one more time are just as good as how you look and, you know, the status as, as playmate, as opposed to who you are. It was awful because you you think of Dr. Phil in the show and it's about making things better, supposedly. Um, but I learned quickly. I'm like, okay, Jordan has like his dad's black Amex, you know, and it's like a, enabling children. Doesn't he have episodes about don't enable your children? And here he is doing it. So it all fell apart quickly. And I, you know, I understood it was the wrong the wrong thing. And things are not always what they seem anywhere. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So is that what kind of sent you back into the mansion and to the arms of Hef, so to speak? Well, that relationship had failed. I had opened a lingerie store with a friend and I'm like, I'm not even into this. Why do I have this store that failed? And Mary secretary, our Hef secretary, Mary reached out to me and said, you know, Hef hasn't been happy. He misses you. Um, he's been really sad and I was reflecting on, sorry. 
I was reflecting on my own life and I thought, okay, maybe that's where I'm just meant to be. Maybe that's just my path and I need to go back. Yeah. I mean, for someone who had spent so many years of your life kind of stopping and starting with people and not finding this ultimate love, like, I feel like it was really evident. You just, you were swayed by wanting to feel seen and needed and loved. And the fact that Hef was, you know, acting like he missed you so much and needed you probably obviously would have pulled you back. Yeah. And I feel like he gave me my value. It's disturbing looking back, but you know, if you don't really know who you are, Mm -hmm. like someone, someone can give you that, that value or that, you know, credibility. Yeah. He just, he just, um, I don't know. It's like made made me into who he wanted me to be. Mm -hmm. And, but when someone does that, they can also take it away from you. So, um, it's hard. Right. So you go back to the mansion and you get married that same year at the end of the year in December, correct? Yes. And were you okay on your wedding day? I mean, were you happy about it? Did you feel invested or was it something you were dreading? Well, the wedding got narrowed down. I think the first wedding was going to have like 300 people. We we're getting RSVPs from like Paris Hilton and Gene Simmons, who are great people, but um, like, this is too much. This is, uh, this is a lot for an introvert, especially. Um, so there was about 10 or 15 people at the wedding when it actually happened a year later. Mm-hmm. It was easy. And from there, we just went out to like the New Year's Eve party in the backyard. Right. So how was life as a, as a married woman? It got easier. It got easier when we were married. I think, you know, he was getting older. He was more dependent on me. He would let people know if there's a request from Crystal, take it as a request from me. He Mm. would, instead of like oogling over scantily dressed women, like he would tell them like, oh, have you met my wife? And it just, it made me feel more confident. Um, Mm. And eventually I, stopped bleaching my hair and I took my implants out and Mm -hmm. he respected me more. He ended up respecting me more. Right. Your relationship changed into something of real love. It might not have been in love, but of where he really cared about you. And you felt that one of the lines you say, I'm not going to get it right, but something about how at the beginning you really needed Hef. And at the end, he really needed you. And I thought that was a really powerful way to look at your story. Yeah, that's very true. Um, yeah, I think, I think he really did need me and I think he definitely respected me more toward the end. Maybe he saw me less of an object and more as a human. Yeah. Um, I recently had somebody on talking about, um, BII, which is breast implant, um, illness. And is that something, I mean, it's actually not diagnosable to, to be honest, but it's, you know, the, the symptoms are are what, um, allows people to know that that's what they have. You talk openly about getting sick from your implants, right? Yes. Yeah. I got my implants out in 2016 and I publicly started talking about it openly. Mm -hmm. Uh, A lot of people have messaged me and also got their implants out. I was very, very sick. And the you know, everything, fibromyalgia, mm-hmm. all kinds of stuff, like clicking and popping in my joints and brain fog and my adrenals tank, my thyroid, just, they, they were killing me. I think f- for different people, they can handle them better, but, but right. my implants were killing me. 
Well, it's such an interesting and scary um, thing that happens because it's almost like an invisible disease. You look okay, but you feel awful. And when you try and explain it to people, they're like, oh, it's fibromyalgia. Oh, it's depression. Because a lot of the symptoms fall under all sorts of categories, right? So yeah. we finally narrow it down. Like, did you have a leak? Did they finally find that you had a leak? Or no, I had- was just reject- rejecting it. My body was just rejecting it. I had saline implants. So it was basically salt water, but the shell is silicone. Um, you know, just just crazy. Like you we get implants to to feel sexy, to be yeah. sexier, but my like sex drive was completely killed. Mm-hmm. You know, I, there's nothing I didn't feel sexy at all. My hair was falling out. Um, yeah, so just it was just the saline they hadn't ruptured, but I felt so much better once I got them out. And mm-hmm. after researching and talking to thousands of women, I, there are a few things I've noticed, like there are different brands of implants. I've noticed more people are sick with, uh, Allergan than they are the mentor brand and just, just little things like that. Um, it just depends on the person and their immune system, I think. Yeah. So I'm curious for someone whose life was so dependent on how you look and about how people perceive you. How hard was that to say, okay, I'm going to take my breasts out. And then, you know, what are you left with after? Like, were you, did, I mean, how did you deal with that? Um, I think at that point in my life, I was so sick of the misogyny. that I'm just like, I'm taking this out. I don't care. The only reason I got implants was for the opposite sex or to be more desirable or to be more, whatever is expected or whatever of me. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't care really um i to this day i'm just it's hard to this to this day i'm like i only want to date people that are just like me for what's in mostly internal and um it shouldn't matter to to them if i have scars or whatever right well yeah and the people that have gone through it believe that their scars mean something and they're yeah okay absolutely and there there's still people I've talked to that are, they're telling me I'm I'm really sick but my my boyfriend or my husband doesn't want me to take them out right. and it makes me so angry I know it's <laughs> like, terrible it's oh. terrible but it is very hard as you know to get to that place with where you are finally okay with yourself and you're finally okay with saying I'd rather be alone than be with the wrong type of person that wants me for something that I'm not anyway. It's too hard to keep up with that, but it is hard. It's really difficult for people to get to that place in their lives. Um, Okay. So both you and Hef were getting sick at that point and um, Hef dies. What was that like when he finally died? Um, it happened fast. Mm-hmm. I went on a trip. I finally was standing my ground because he would, he didn't let me go anywhere. Mm-hmm. Um, but finally I'm like, I'm going on a trip. So I went away for a week. When I came back, I was told that he didn't want to go, want to go down a movie night that he's, which is for half not going to movie night. It's like unheard of. Mm-hmm. So I, I'm like, are you okay? And he just seemed very indifferent. And his secretary mentioned that she had Googled that if somebody's older and they get like a urinary tract infections, the symptoms are different. Like they're more withdrawn and confused. So I'm like, let's test him and see if he has a UTI. And we did. And it turned out it was a highly resistant E. coli strain. Um, I think it was sensitive to one antibiotic. And so we found the antibiotic. We immediately turned his bedroom into like an ER and 
it's the antibiotic didn't work fast enough and he just got more sick and more sick and eventually went into sepsis and at that point I'm like do I take him to the hospital do we, we keep him here he never wanted to go to a hospital he wouldn't even have white sheets on his bed because it reminded him of a hospital he told me he wants to die in his bed um so I'm reading his advanced healthcare directive with which I'm like oh my gosh how am I the one <laughs> listed on this as making his end of life decisions and I'm in the other room because I didn't want him to hear any of this, trying to decide. And um, the attorney came in and his assistant and um, his doctor had said, if he stays at the house, he's going to die. But if he goes to the hospital, it's only like a 30% chance of living. And I'm trying to make this decision because on the healthcare directive, it says, if my life could be saved, take me to the hospital which he, it was bacteria. So I, technically it could be, but if I had something terminal, I don't want to go. And so I'm just crying, trying to like, what do we do? We're trying to save him. And right at that moment, a nurse came in from his room and said, you know, he's gone. Um, so he made the decision for us. Right. And yeah. He, he was 91. So he did live a long life. He lived a long life. Did you get to say all the things to him that you had wanted to say? Yeah, I did. I did. And toward the end, you know, he was, I feel like he did maybe change a bit or hopefully I'd like to think he learned some lessons. Um, yeah, I remember him just really not well. And toward the end, I just asked him, I'm like, are you okay? You know, are you doing okay? And he said, I'm okay. And that was the last thing he ever said. So, so do you think he had any idea of what was to come that, you know, women would come out and it would be such a, a turn of events after the fact. And obviously me too happened later. So he didn't even get to know what that was about, but do you think he, you know, had any inkling that his reputation could change after he died? Absolutely not. <laughs> so I think he, he kept, he like meticulously kept these 3000 books of scrapbooks he documented his life from the very beginning up until the very end. And he even told the people in the, he had a scrapbook department, like put my obituaries in the end, like all of the stuff. And I truly think that and believe that he kept such great record because he had a, he thought that people would be studying him and fascinated by him and in love with him for many, many, many years decades. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so a, a man had bought the mansion before Hef's death and had said, you guys could live there throughout his life. And then soon after you guys had to leave, where did all the mementos go? Where did everything go? Um, they all went to storage to, um, iron mountain, which is, the, which is the iron mountain for sure. So all the scrapbooks yeah. are there and memorabilia. And he did want his stuff to go to his fans. And mm -hmm. so we did have a big auction after he died with Julian's auctions and raised 4 million for his foundation and sold a lot of his stuff that his fans, fans might want, like his pajamas, smoking jackets, slippers, pipe. Right. So were you nervous about how your life was going to change now that you had to move out of a house now that your husband was no longer alive, you know, like you said, kind of giving you credibility, making you feel important, even though I think it, it's obvious you had learned some lessons and learned how to stand on your own two feet um, since you were younger. 
Yeah. After he died, I couldn't leave the house for like six weeks. I just mm -hmm. stayed in one of the other bedrooms and couldn't leave. Mm -hmm. I remember his children all went to like Kat Katsuya and they like they were, had pictures taken of them. And I'm like, oh my gosh, like I can't even leave the house. I, I felt guilt. I felt all kinds of emotions. Um, like feeling how could we have saved him? Like all kinds of emotions. Um, but after I finally left in December, 2017, I just went traveling. Mm -hmm. The one thing I couldn't do while I was there, I'm like, I'm just going to go. And I, I went to Africa and all over for a month. And, um, now I finally, finally found a, a house <laughs> that I'm at now that I, it feels like my home, the first home, true home I've ever had. That's mm -hmm. all mine. And yeah, I'm just discovering what I like, which is weird to say, but it's like, I, I started with a matchmaking service and they, they asked me, they're like, Oh, what do you like? Like, what are your hobbies? And I froze. I'm like, I, I don't even know what I like. Like, what do I like? And so I'm like, okay, I got to oh, put that, on, put a pin on that and discover what I actually like. Mm. Um, yeah. Yeah. Wow. It's hard. Did you have any friends at that point? I mean, it must be so hard because you're so isolated. You have all these people around you all the time, but I know that feeling you have a lot of people around you, but you still feel so alone. Like, so when he died and you're talking about going on this trip, did you have people to go on a trip with? Did you have people you could confide in? Yeah, I had a couple childhood friends. Um, throughout the years at the mansion, the 10 years I was there, I met thousands and thousands of women and I'm friends with only three of them. Hmm. So it was hard and very cutthroat, but yeah, I had two good friends that went traveling with me and it was nice. Yeah. Did you take any mementos from the mansion? Uh, I'm trying to think of what I have, like not too many things. Uh, if anything, like <laughs> I wanted to get rid of most everything. Hmm. Like I, all the outfits for the parties and all the things I wore and like, I, I hated playing dress up and doing all that stuff. So I, all that yeah. stuff's gone. Like, okay, mm -hmm. I, I don't want to wear heels anymore. <laughs> right. But um, knowing you were moving out of the house, I just wonder if you like, I don't know, took a doorknob that meant something to you or <laughs> I don't even know, but like something that I think the like, whole I place, I think the whole place gives me like PTSD. So I think I didn't want to re remember anything from there. Um, right. I do have like a couple of guitars in here that um, nice. one was my dad's and there were a couple from the mansion that have signed when I was learning how to play. But um, I have a couple paintings, like a Maryland painting that I liked, but that's kind of it. Yeah. So talk about how you got the name for the book. Oh, goodness. Mm -hmm. <sighs> uh, when Hef was getting older, he put me on the board of his foundation and he reminded me that when he's gone, he wants me to only say good things about him. And I promised him, I said, I will only say good things about you always. And I kept that promise for, for five years. Mm -hmm. um, but I feel that the promise was eating me internally. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and so I, I figured I need to, I need to tell the truth, you know, have controlled the narrative for, for 70 years and, Mm -hmm. There needs to be other voices coming out from the place and other people's perspectives. And we had fans following us for so long. And like, I owe it to them. I owe it to these girls that are writing us when they're 14 years old, some as young as 11 saying, yeah. 
you know, I just got a new Playboy bedspread. Like, what does it take to get into the mansion? It's like these these girls need to know that it wasn't it wasn't that great. Right, right. What was the process for you of writing this book? Um, I think I just through therapy, I just started pages and pages and pages of notes. Mm-hmm. And then those notes turned into stories that I felt were worthwhile for the book. Mm-hmm. And then this, the book turned into, you know, the order of the stories and kind of just went into this comprehensive, you know, easy to digest type of stories that the people could hopefully understand. Yeah. And you said that it was frustrating that half had the narrative this whole time for people that want to read your book and you get to absolutely hear your own narrative in this book, what would you succinctly say is your narrative? I think that the mansion was a place for me, it was traumatic. Um, Playboy is meant to be, or showed themselves as somewhere that's like sexual freedom and expression and just everything that's meant to be free. And I felt anything but that I felt completely trapped. And I just, I just think the story is important to tell. I think that there are other situations, not necessarily the mansion, but where people feel trapped or feel like there's a big power imbalance or they're completely losing themselves to someone else. Mm -hmm. Um, The dedication of the book is to anyone that's struggling with self worth and self-acceptance you're not alone mm-hmm. um so I, I hope that it helps people yeah and that power imbalance is something that a lot of people unless they've been through it really don't understand how hard it is to be able to decipher um you know there's a lot of things age money you know all sorts of things but you know to really understand um your sense of self and how to create your sense of self when there is that power balance you don't get a voice you don't, um, and, and you're, really you're nothing, yeah. <laughs> you're, you're nothing. Yeah. Like you're only important because this person says you are, and everyone surrounding them has been kind of tipped off by them. Like, Hey, treat, treat this person well, or keep them in the, but right. as soon as that person is like, I've, I'm done with them, then they've, you're nothing. Right. <laughs> and the, and the horrible thing about that, that people don't understand is, wow, it might be so constricting and terrible to be in that space where you got PTSD for living it. The fear of not having that and being in this abyss where no one sees you and you don't know who you are and you have no identity is almost scarier. And sometimes if you go in that direction and you find that and think that that's a way out, I think a lot of times people feel like they'd rather be in the other scenario because at least they were seen as someone um, because it's lonely. They belonged somewhere. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so do you think having the Hefner last name has hurt you or has it helped you? I'm not sure. Uh, shortly after we got married, he, his secretary had it all changed to Hefner. He wanted me to he- be Hefner right away. I had a friend that got married recently after us and asked me how she changes, changed her name. And I'm like, I have no idea. It was all done for me. Um, for the last five years before writing the book, I, I just hid out. And so I, I wasn't really around people to, to talk about it or really dive into it. But since the book has come out, um, now, now it's something that I'm like internally thinking about, like, I don't want to be Hefner. 
Like I'm done with that. Like I've closed the, 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 the book now that I've written it. And I feel like my name needs to go back to what I originally was. Yeah. Um, did you watch the A&E docuseries? I watched some of it. And what were your thoughts on it? I think that there's a lot of truth in what the women are talking about. Um, some of it, you know, I, I would, I watched it with an open mind and some of the allegations were a bit far-fetched, you know, trying to blame Hef for something that happened in like Geneva to with some other parties. But um, yeah, I believe, I believe the women and what they say, and it was a hard place to be. Yeah. Was there something you took from it that was the most surprising or shocking to you? I think it just, it helped me feel more validated in the way, the way that I feel. Had you, had you started writing your book yet? Is that something that helped you feel like you could talk? Uh, I hadn't. And I was kind of against the A&E. They had asked me to be part of it. And I said, no, you know, I'm on the board of Hess Foundation. I'm like, oh no, I don't want to be. But watching that and then I'm like, okay, I need to, I need to get um, my side out of there, out there. Right. Right. So what has life been like for you? You said you kind of hit out for the last five years. What has your life been like? It's been mellow. You know, I'm not huge on the Hollywood scene. Uh, I never really wanted to be an actor or anything like that. Um, I bought a farm in Hawaii a few years ago. It's a lychee farm. So I I go back and forth and just want a calm, quiet life. Uh, I recently started seeing someone that, actually really normal and kind and caring. And so I think that's really important. And so life is good right now. Yeah. I was going to ask you, like, how do you date? Because you haven't had a great track record with knowing what unconditional love is with men who respect you, love you for who you are, men that will stay. What, how would you suggest for people that resonate with your story that are still looking to know what a healthy relationship is? Like, how did you even find yours? I think the majority of, of what helped me was listening to my intuition and mm-hmm. at the mansion, I, I pushed it down, you know, just like that first night going up to the bedroom, like, this is weird. And I'm like, push it down, push it down, make it quiet. But now I'm trying to listen to my intuition more. Um, after the mansion, I dated some not so good guys, like struggling musicians and actors. And um, it was manipulating, controlling. And I'm like, wait, this is, this is deja vu, except this time I'm paying the bills. I'm like, no, no, this is awful. Um, it, it took, it took a while and not settling for anything less. And if you see a red flag or anything that's off, Mm -hmm. cut it off. We cannot fix people. We cannot change people. People are not going to grow up. Um, when you meet someone it just, it just feels right when somebody is actually kind and caring and wants the best for you. Yeah. I'm just curious if you think that Jordan McGraw or Dr. Phil will read your book. (laughs) I hope so. We have the same attorney. (laughs) Oh, that's funny. All right. So they'll at least hear about it. (laughs) I know. Um, Hopefully they read it. I I think Jordan's grown up a bit. I think he's married now. Mm -hmm. Hopefully he's happy. Yeah. Um, You were talking about Kendra earlier and that you're friendly with her now. Um, What's your response to her saying that Playboy messed up her whole life. I agree with her. Mm -hmm. I agree with her. I was on season two of her show. We had a sit down talk and 
we said something, she said something about a bedroom or bed. And I'm like, oh yeah, we've shared the same bed, you know, not at the same time, but I kind of made a joke about it. I'm like, literally same bed. And she froze and she's like, I, I can't talk about that stuff. When I start there, when I'm in my, with my therapist and that starts coming up, I just, I can't talk about it. And I told her, I'm like, Kendra, as soon as you can talk about this, that's when you'll finally be free as mm. soon as you can talk about it. And so I do feel that, that she's completely telling the truth. Yeah. Um, you said you didn't have such a great, uh, relationship right now with Holly and Bridget. Um, did Holly reach out to you after you tweeted about destroying all of those photos besides her saying, thanks. Uh, yeah, she just, she said, thank you. We ended up following each other on Instagram for a little bit and, but then some, some silly little thing happened and now we're not following anymore. I'm like, can we just drop it? Can we just all get along? Right. Yeah. As I said before, I think that you guys out of anyone would kind of need each other to go. I hope that, um, happens. Um, okay. Uh, do you have any good memories or what's your favorite memory of half? I don't, (laughs) I, 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 I don't. I wish I could think of something that just was great, but I just think of feeling trapped and just, yeah. Wow. Okay. Um, If they did a movie about your life, who would you want to play you? That's so sweet. I've been seeing like, uh, I think Sydney Sweeney. I think she's, she's adorable. I think that would be really cool. Okay. Um, I'm looking at questions that people sent in. So that's so cute. Someone wanted to know. I know you're dating someone, but someone wanted to know if you've ever been on a dating app. Raya. Oh, you are okay, or you were okay. And Raya, did it, that's right. Did it work for you? Yeah, yeah. I'm very introverted, so I don't know how to meet people in the wild. So dating apps have been very good to me. Yeah, I agree. I'm the same way. Um, <laughs> Let's see. Uh, you answered most of these questions. Oh, somebody said that it seems like the staff was more support, more supportive than the other girls. Are you close to any of the staff members or do you talk to anyone from there still? Yes. I'm still friends with some of them. And it felt like they, they were my friends. Like I was, we were more normal together than the dynamic with Hef, you know, it's just, so I, they felt like family. Yeah. Right. Um, would my last question is, would you do it all over again? Um, I wouldn't do it all over again, but I'm grateful for where I am now and coming out the other side. Um, I, I don't think I would change the story, but I don't think if all of a sudden I got transported back, I'd be like, Oh, I can't do this again. Right. What can we expect from your second act, so to speak in life? Like where, you know, what are the things you want to do? Who do you want to be? Like, what do you want out of life going forward? You're so young still. So you have, you know, you have so much ahead of you. That's so sweet. Uh, just focusing on the book launch. I started a podcast called Beneath the Surface, trying mm-hmm. to have more of a voice and exercise my voice. You know, I couldn't use it before. Um, so yeah, I'm just trying to to get out there and be a voice and and show up. And if I can help somebody along the way, then that'll make me really happy. That's amazing. And um, your podcast is great. I've listened to a few episodes. You um, really are a voice for people that 
don't know how to kind of find their worth and don't know how to get out of that. And I think you're a really good lesson of, um, you know, your self-worth doesn't come from a man. It doesn't come from money. It doesn't come from experiences like that. It comes from finally, like being able to face up to what you've been through and tell your story and love yourself first before you love someone else. Um, even if you don't know what loving someone else is yet exactly, you know? So I think you're really, um, you know, you're a really special person to look at for someone to get, um, you know, guidance, you know, because so many people struggle with that self-worth thing. Um, is there a career that we will see out of you that you want to do? I mean, you said you started taking up guitar and I know you liked music, your dad (laughs) was a musician. Like what, is there anything that we don't know about you that we should know about you? Oh, no, I think, you know, I like having my mellow life. And um, after years of therapy, my therapist is like, do something that doesn't involve what you look like. (laughs) So I'm like, okay. Um, So I've been doing a lot of real estate and like remodel projects, and I'm building a couple of houses in Hawaii. So I like to just um, do things like that. It feels creative. And right. So you don't think we would see you on like Dancing with the Stars? No, no, no. (laughs) I cannot dance and I'm not going to embarrass myself. Right. Well, a lot of those people can't dance, but you know, (laughs) I think they all like the spotlight is what it is. Mm, Um, All right. So tell, tell people where they can listen to your podcast one more time and where they can find you if they want more information and where they can get your book. Oh, so everywhere that sells books, Amazon and everywhere, um, it's called Only Say Good Things. And then wherever you listen to podcasts, if you just type my name, Crystal Hefner, and it's called Beneath the Surface. Perfect. Crystal, it's been such a pleasure. I wish you such luck in your future. Everybody needs to go out and buy this book. It is so good. You guys, I'm not just saying this. It's a phenomenal book. You're going to read it start to finish and get so many insights, not only into Playboy, if that's what you're there for to read about, but into this beautiful woman and um, learn a lesson or two about yourself. So again, thank you so much. Thank you so much for listening to Misunderstood. I'm your host, Rachel Yucatel. Please be sure to subscribe to the show and give us a five-star rating and review. You can support the show by joining our Patreon at patreon.com slash misunderstood with Rachel Yucatel. Do you have ideas for the show or want to reach out? Email us at info misunderstoodpodcast at gmail.com. That's spelled M-I-S-S understood. Thank you so much and I'll see you next time. Misunderstood.